Hello, um, welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. This is a podcast series where that's an adjunct to my main series, which is called American Writers, 100 pages at a time. Um, in that main series, I go through the Library of America. Um, but in this series, I'll be taking a closer and more in-depth look at the works of HP Lovecraft, uh, looking at all the stories, um, looking at many of his letters, his nonfiction writing, his poetry, whatever I can get my hands on by Lovecraft. So um, this particular episode is From Beyond. Um, this was written in November 1920. Uh, it was not published until very late in Lovecraft's life, until June 1934 in Fantasy Fan. Um, later on, it was published in Weird Tales uh, four years later. Its first publication in Weird Tales was Posthumous. So this story stood on the shelf, unlike many stories he wrote at this time, where there was a fairly fast turnover between when they were written and when they were seen in print. This one sat on the shelf. But it was written uh, right around the same time of, of Selephus, which was a story we looked at last time. In fact, the same month. Both were written in November of 1920. And they're very, very different stories. I think that's the striking thing. Um, Selephus is about dreamla the dreamlands. It's about a dreamer. It's about, uh, about drug addiction, about... Uh, withdraw from the world it's a totally it's a pure fantasy story right um from beyond is is straight up science fiction it's a science fiction tale um, it reminds me in many ways of the great god pan by by makem arthur makem uh in that you have a scientist a, like a scientist inviting his friend over saying why well, you know don't you want to see what i just discovered and uh I think actually in The Great God Pan, it was the experiment he wanted him to witness. But anyways, it's the same idea and the, and the same concept is there in that somehow through science, we're able to change our perception and, and see beyond, sort of beyond the veil and see the world as it really is. And The Great God Pan was a surgery done on a, just like a drifter girl or a prostitute that he adopted and basically sacrificed. Um, but this leads to the horror of the story later on. This is a much smaller story, but it has that same idea of an experiment of a scientist trying to get at the kind of the essence of reality underneath the surface, right? The, the, limit, the limits of our perception, right? And of course, this is a common theme in philosophy. Uh, many philosophers have explored this idea that like our perception is limited, right? Kant's uh, categories, right? That we, we sort of do see the world through a limited lens. And then even the more scientific worldview uh, sees it that, you know, our eyes can literally only see so much of light, most light we cannot experience, so we don't see it uh, without special devices. You know, obviously we don't hear as well as, as dogs, we don't have the same sense and all those things, so our perception is, is fairly limited. And what would the world look like if we did have this broader, broader perception? Um, so it's it's a very fascinating idea, of course, and something that even at a young age you kind of experiment to play with. Even that stupid game you might play with your friends where you try to guess, you know, does green look different for you than it does for me? Can't really prove it. But um, anyways. Um, oh, another place, another way kind of this question of perception is played with by scientists and philosophers is, of course, intellectual or structural kind of perception, right? The structuralist argument is that our intellectual uh, framing of things is a consequence of our of, of the structures we come out of, right? Like we see the world a certain way because we come out of the modern world, 
right? Or maybe it's our language, right? Of course, the post-structuralists begin to play more with language as playing a role in how we perceive the world um, and interpret it and understand it. But the earlier structuralists looked more at like, you know, like the Marxian idea, right? That our perception of religion, our perception of God, our perception of power, our perception of the dialectic, the dialectics we see in the world are all reflections of our economic system. And that's going to limit our perception of reality, right? Um, so anyways, that, that is something that's being played with by thinkers in Lovecraft's time. Uh, this is not a story so much about race. Uh, it's not really a story that gets into that element of it. Something, you know, I, I just mentioned it because that is the focus of this podcast is going to be Lovecraft's views on race and to try to give as thorough as possible an accounting of his ideas on race and the race, racist ideology that frames so much of his work. Uh, his concepts of, of eugenics, of, of ancestry, all that. But that's not really strong in this story. I mean, there's a few themes of decline here, which is something that comes up a lot and is often tied to those racial motifs. But this is just a straight up science fiction story about a scientist showing his friend that, he, you know, his invention, which allows him to see beyond the veil and to experience what's what's kind of behind there. There are, however, class issues in this story, which I'll, which I'll get at when I start to dig deeper into it. So anyways, the story. Um, so our narrator uh, is, you know, runs into his friend or, or visits his friend Crawford Tillinghast. These are essentially the only two characters in the story. There are servants as well, but they're sort of in the backdrop. And that's why I said there's kind of a class dimension to the story that should be considered. These, these people don't really play a major role in the story, however. Um, and so when he comes to visit, and he immediately notices that this Tillian Hast is suffering some kind of horrible decline um, based on his experiments, based on his experiences some way in his laboratory. Quote, I had known that he now remained mostly shut in the attic laboratory with that accursed electric machine eating little and excluding even the servants. But I had not thought that a brief period of 10 weeks could so alter and disfigure any human creature. It is not pleasant to see a stout man suddenly grown thin. And it's even worse when the baggy skin becomes yellowed or grayed, the eyes sunken, circled, and uncannily glowing, the forehead veined and corrugated, and the hands tremulous and twitching. And if added to the, this, there be a repellent unkemptness, a wild disorder of dress, a bushiness of dark hair white at its roots, an unchecked growth of pure white beard on a face once clean-shaven, the cumulative effect is quite shocking. So we have a character in, in deep decline. Uh, we've seen this or we see this in other stories by Lovecraft, where you have uh, a character who, as he kind of goes into some sort of occult research or some, you know, ancient tomes that he shouldn't be reading, he suffers this kind of physical decline. I think most notably, maybe in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, uh, you have that theme. Of course, there, the change is partially due to the fact that he's murdered and replaced by his ancestor, Joseph Kerwin. But from the outside perspective, it looks like he has this decline. But there's other examples of characters who, who kind of suffer a physical decline as they as they learn more, as they discover more, right? As they know more about their past, and you know, here it's this investigating into science, and that, therefore we have to kind of go back and think about uh, Arthur German, the facts concerning the late Arthur German and his family. A wonderful story uh, about science as well, but it's more of the science of of, of gene of, of descent of anthropology um, but he writes in that story as we recall 
Science, already oppressive with its shocking revelations, will perhaps be the ultimate exterminator of our human species. If separate species we be, for its reserved, unguessed horrors could never be borne by mortal brains if loosed upon the world. Right? So the more you understand about how the universe actually works, the more horrifying it is. And that may account for this uh, descent. Also, just the hard work, I guess, of being locked up in his, in his lab. But largely, it's, it's something he's seen, right? And we get the sense of this because he is very nervous when talking to the narrator. Like he's often looking over his shoulders, a little anxious about what he's seen or whatever. So then we get into Crawford Tillinghast's motivation, uh, his study of science and philosophy. And, um, and actually Lovecraft here makes an interesting little comment here about, uh, I guess, uh, interdisciplinarity or the dangers of it he says like people shouldn't study science and philosophy because philosophy asks questions that science can answer but only at great peril right um quote these things should be left to the frigid and impersonal investigator for they offer two equally tragic alternatives to the man of feeling and action despair if he fails in his quest and tears unnumerable unutterable and unimaginable if he succeed end quote so yeah it's actually a little bit different he's saying both of these fields kind of lead to the same dark uh, reality. Um, and he was already kind of had this, he was already prone to melancholy. And so him kind of getting involved in science and philosophy, just a bad idea overall for him. Um, so a lot of the story, and it's not a very long one. It's, it's a 20 minute audiobook. It's only uh, seven, eight pages in the Klinger, Klinger uh, anthology. This is in the Beyond Arkham one. Uh, as are most of the early short fiction or in the Beyond Arkham book. Um, but he he then, so a lot of the story is just uh, Tillian Haas lecturing about science. And then he gets into his lecture about how limited we are in perception be, um, by our five feeble sentence, sense, senses. Quote, we pretend to comprehend the boundlessly complex cosmos yet other beings in a wider stronger or different range of senses may not only see differently the things we see but um, see and study whole worlds of matter energy and life which lie close at hand and yet can never be detected by the senses um, we have now he's suggesting here that you know Creature, higher creatures may experience things or creatures that we don't even know exist may experience this reality, right? But I, I suppose we've all had experiences maybe with pets where our dog like, hears something that we don't hear or our cat kind of is going crazy. We don't know why, you know, and they're perceiving something that we don't perceive, right? And and I think there's actually even more mundane example of this of just because different creatures evolve different senses and different uses of senses, Right? Um, so he is saying, Tilling has to say that we can break free of this limitation using technology and basically a kind of physics is, is played with here and quote, we shall overleap time, space and dimension without bodily motion peer to the bottom of creation. End quote. This is very, very similar to how the character in the doctor at the beginning of the great God Pan talks about his experiment. Like there, it's literally the phrase, you know we see the great God Pan is a, is a reference to understanding kind of that deeper reality underneath the surface of things. And now Tilling has, he begins to sort of be restored a little bit by his excitement over his discoveries and his eagerness to share them 
he actually seems to come get revived from his his decline that was so conspicuous early on um, you know kind of excited and restored in a way now he notices that one of the servants is gone uh, old Gregory is missing and the kind of the mystery of the servants is kind of is core to this story it's in the subtext of of everything and it's kind of a big part of the of the main scare the main kind of punchline of this of this tale yet curiosity is shared by both the narrator and Crawford Tillinghast they both have it um, like quote before I had protested at his unnatural prines and the unthinkable now that he had evidently succeeded to some degree I almost shared his spirit terrible though the cost of victory appeared up through the dark emptiness of the house, I followed the bobbing candle in the hand of this shaking parody on man. The electricity seemed to be turned off, and when I asked my guide, he said it was for a definite reason, end quote. So here we have a very a relationship that's a bit similar to that of, of the statement of Randall Carter. We got Randall Carter and, and Warren. Warren being the master, the one who's kind of got there first, the one with a kind of a deeper drive and, a, and and he's able to experience things more fully and we got the other one who just is able to experience it on the edges right it's a very very similar relationship our narrator here is is a little bit more active than randall carter is in that story randolph carter just sort of experiences things and literally hears what happens to his his master his teacher uh our narrator here takes a little bit more of a decisive role towards the end but nevertheless he's just going to experience it for a moment and it seems that Tilling has experienced it much more fully. And that way, it's, it does remind me of the Warren-Carter um, relationship in that story. Um, a lot of great stuff on technology in this story, too, like the different devices. It's something that Lovecraft obviously was very interested in. It, it sort of maybe is most uh, seen in Whisper in Darkness. Um, you know, this use of technology as an investigative tool, the use of technology to get at some different reality, uh, to record something, to, uh, to sometimes it's alien, you know, that I think the Whisper in Darkness kind of pulls all those threads together in interesting ways, as like the Shadow of Time does too in a, in a way. Um, but yeah, we got this, this kind of electrical machine put together by Tillinghast, which is going to allow us to see this other realm beyond our senses. Um, and there's a long description of this right and as he's kind of preparing him to kind of turn on this machine and experience this reality beyond the uh, our senses he explains a little bit more the science behind it and essentially the science behind this in addition to the physics the first description he has is largely one of physical um, limitations the limitation of our perception kind of in the terms of, in realms of just physics and light and all that and color plays a major role in the story as well, right? Um, you know, quote, meaning meanwhile, the luminosity increased, waned again, and assumed a pale outre color of blend of colors, which I can neither place nor describe, end quote. Obviously, if you've read The Color Out of Space, you know this, you know, this idea of a color that can't be described, that doesn't fit what we normally perceive as a color, is, is something Lovecraft was interested in. Um, so he's already sort of seen something beyond... Um, perception right right because you know i don't know what this color we can't see would be i mean we're only able to perceive certain colors and we've already s presumably seen them all if you've seen a rainbow right i've never quite gotten like it, there must be you know in the color of space we're told that that's a color that no one's experienced before it's truly new to human perception therefore it must be outside of our 
realm of perception, but why are we able to perceive it? Right? Um, and it's kind of played with here too. But anyways, we get this kind of more biological description and, and here Lovecraft does kind of talk about descent and, and evolution a little bit, something else he was very interested in, obviously, um, where he says it's like the pineal gland. This is the old, um, well, I guess sometimes it's a pituitary gland. Uh, in this case, it's the pineal gland. I mean, these different glands get overstated importance at various times in, in human history. Wasn't it Descartes who said the the pituitary gland was where like the mind and body connection is, is reached. It's like the domain of the soul. Um, but it's basically, this is an atrophied organ is in this view in the brain, an atrophied organ that can, that used to be this great sense organ that allows to perceive things, but it's atrophied over, over time, right? Quote, your existing sense organs, ears first, I think, will pick up many of the impressions for they are closely connected with the dominant organs. Then there'll be others. You have heard of the pineal gland. I laugh at the shallow chronologist, fellow dupe and fellow parvenu of the Freudian. The gland is the great sense organ of organs, I have found out. It is like sight in the end. It transmits visual pictures to your brain. If you're nocturnal, or sorry, if you're normal, that is the way you ought to get most of it. I mean, get most of the evidence from beyond. But it doesn't function. It must not function, otherwise we'd be getting these messages from beyond, right? So his machine has to somehow turn it on. So I'm getting the sense it's like must be an atrophied sense organ that maybe at one time humans had, kind of like a vestigial tail or something. Uh, now, just to give a shout out to, to Stephen King, I believe it's in Firestarter where we are told that it's uh, puberty that unlocks like psychic abilities and in like it's, I think it's in Firestarter, right? Even though that little girl's younger, she's prepubescent, but she has uh, great power. But the fear is once she gets to puberty, the pineal gland will unleash all these, you know, hormones into the body, and that'll just like, you know, you know, several orders of magnitude make her more powerful, right? That's why the, the one character in that story is so afraid, right? But you know, it's fun for people to kind of take these little organs in the body that that we don't really fully understand but to give them kind of use them for supernatural storytelling but anyways um let's get on with this so um now he starts to get a little bit spooked by this whole experience and he pulls out his gun and there's a little nice little shout out here apparently this was um not in the manuscript and it showed up later. So Lovecraft late added this at some point, but he says like, I start, ever since I got robbed that time in Providence, I've been carrying this gun. This by the way, is one of a couple of stories that Lovecraft sets in Providence. Uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward is the other major one that's set in Providence. Uh, this one is, is, is as well. I don't know if there's others. I don't think there are many others. Uh, of course, many of his stories later on are set in that, in that kind of revised semi-fictional geography of Arkham and Innsmouth and Kingsport and all that. So um, so we get the story of another servant who's missing um, and the narrator starts to investigate and ask about the servants and Tilling Hass gives the story of, of Mrs. Updike um, and all that there is of Mrs. Updike is her clothes and he just sort of says, well, she sort of left. She just sort of, she went away. She got scared of these experiments. She saw something she was spooked and she left. We find out later on that that is not true at all. So finally, Tillian Hass, you know, turns on the machine and our narrator begins to perceive this from beyond. Essentially, you, he sees 
extra dimensional creatures floating around, uh, you know, through things, through matter, right? Several times it's mentioned that they can float through matter. Um, quote, at other times I felt huge animate things brushing past me and occasionally walking or drifting through my supposedly solid body. And I thought I saw Tillinghast look at them as though his better trained senses could touch them visually. I recalled with what he had said at the pineal gland and whether what he saw with his preternatural eye. So this tells us, of course, that uh, Tillinghast has been doing this longer and he's kind of developed those senses. He can see things better. Uh, our narrator is still... I guess not fully perceiving them, he's feeling them, he's sensing them to some degree, but it's not trained. He's not really experienced in using this extrasensory type of perception. Uh, but Tillinghast apparently is. I mean, that's one reason he looks so so ragged, right? Um, and, you know, his talking gets a little bit more mad as he gets more inspired by sharing this knowledge, sharing this, what he's discovered. He gets more worked up and he says, quote, you see them, you see them. You see the things that flow and flop around and through you every moment of your life. You see the creatures that form what men call the pure air and the blue sky. Had I not succeeded in breaking down the barrier? Had I not shown you worlds that no other living man had seen? I heard him scream through the horrible chaos and looked at the wild face thrust so offensively close to mine. His eyes were pits of flame and they glared at me with which, with 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 what I now saw was overwhelming hatred. The machine droned detestably. Uh, then he confesses the fate of the servants, and he says, "Yeah, they didn't just freak out and leave. They were actually vanished, disintegrated by a monster here." And then he says, "Ah, behind you is this monster, and don't you, or, you know, basically he's like a sacrifice. His friend telling us using his friend here almost as a sacrifice to this." creature that once you perceive it you can be consumed by it i i don't quite know how that works i guess you know because this whole thing is about how you perceive this stuff right you perceive this beyond this other realm but if there were threats they'd be threats to us whether we perceive them or not and just because we can perceive them doesn't mean they suddenly perceive us right because maybe they have that same problem but it seems once you can see them they can become a threat to you that seems to be the way lovecraft goes with the story now, he sees this as a kind of a good thing. It, it's kind of like the, the Cthulhu cult in a way where, you, you know, it's like you're doomed by embracing the cult, maybe even to be killed. But, you know, by embracing that, you kind of get some greater freedom, some greater reward at the end of the day. Um, and he says, for instance, space belongs to me. Do you hear? Things are hunting me now, things that devour and dissolve, but I know how to elude them. It is... It is you they will get, as they got the servant, stirring dear sir. I told you it was dangerous to move. I have saved you far by telling you to keep still, saved you to see more sights and to listen to me. If you had moved, they would have been at you long ago. Don't worry, they won't hurt you. They didn't hurt the servants. It was seen that made the poor devil scream so. My pets are not pretty, for they came out of the place where aesthetic standards are very different. Disintegration is quite painless, I assure you, but I want you to see them. I almost saw them but I knew how to stop. You're not curious? You do not... I always knew you were no scientist. And he goes on with this. And a little bit more talking about this, kind of taunting him about this. Like, don't you want to see this thing that's behind you? That if you move, it's going to consume you. Might consume you anyways, right? But just right over your shoulder, you know, don't you want to look at it, right? It's kind of like a Eurydice and Oedipus. Not Oedipus. Oh, um... 
Orpheus and, and Eurydice, right? Or, you know, you're not supposed to look behind you, but you can't stop yourself from looking behind you because something is so compelling behind there, whether it's a beautiful woman, your wife, or you know, being dragged out of heaven, or this, this monster that, that will probably consume you. Now, I still don't know why it is that once you can perceive them, that they can suddenly perceive you. It doesn't really make sense to me. I don't know if it has to. Really what Lovecraft's getting at is this use of science to kind of unlock this this reality and the danger of doing that. Now, how does our character sort of get out of this to tell the story? Because he is the narrator. Well, um, after this kind of mad rant by Tillinghast, he's shot. And, and we're told this all after the fact. Quote, what remains to be told is very brief and may be familiar to you from the newspaper accounts. The police heard a shot in the old Tillinghast house and found us there, Tillinghast dead and me unconscious. They arrested me because the revolver was in my hand and released me three hours later after they found it was apoplexy which had finished Tillinghast and saw that my shot had been directed at the noxious machine, which now lay sh hopelessly shattered on the laboratory floor. So he shoots the machine to, to end their, you know, end the experiment. I guess they get back to kind of normal reality and therefore safe from the creature. But somehow it was so jarring for Tillinghast that he dies. Um, so that's, um, that's it. And then he talks, actually, the final thought of the story is kind of interesting. It's as much as Lovecraft seems to forget to the working class or at least kind of neglect them or see them as villains or, or see them as threats. The final thought of the story is, you know, no one's going to find those servants. They've disappeared and they're just going to remain missing. The police will never find it. Um, and, you know, and this is what is kind of his greatest evidence that something really happened here that is not just delusional, right? Um, in fact, he is kind of, well, he's told by the police and the doctors that he shouldn't trust what he's seen, that, that he was just being hypnotized. You know, yeah, there's some kind of weird machine here and they're doing something to you, but really it was just a form of hypnosis. But... The reason the servants are important because that's this one piece of evidence that something really is there beyond from you know there is something from beyond because the servants are vanished their bodies aren't going to be found anywhere quote what prevents me from believing the doctors just one simple fact that the police never found the bodies of those servants whom they say crawford tilling has murdered so anyways that's the story of uh, from beyond i rather like it i think it's it really does remind me of the great god pan and especially in its, the setup of The Great God Pan reminds me of this story anyways. Um, and I like it. it. It doesn't have a lot of the themes we've been talking about, but it does have one of exploration of the danger of science, which is something he was writing a lot about at this time. Um, and just a really good story with a, with a good effect. And I, I think it works. Um, so that's it. So I, I give this one my my praise and i think you should read it if you haven't now i've never seen the movie i, I know in the last episode I, I promised maybe i'll try but i never got around to it um i know the movie is like a b movie um i think it came out around the same time as or similar time as her, the reanimator movie which i had seen and i think it's kind of great and i will talk about that a little bit when i get to the reanimator um episode in in a few weeks so I just didn't watch it, and hopefully I'll get to it at some point. But I apologize for not having more to say about the, the film. I have heard it's worth seeing, though. So anyways, the next story that I'm going to look at is Ex Oblivione. Um, it's only a two-page story. So um, that'll be a very, very short episode. In fact, I may look at the next two stories in one episode. I'll, I'll see how much I say about Ex Oblivione. And if 
It's not that much. It's a Dreamland story, by the way. Kind of another story that kind of fits into that Dreamland mythos. But if I don't have enough to say about it to kind of fill out a whole episode, I will then toss talk about Nyarlathotep, uh, which is kind of the next story he wrote. So Ex Oblivione was written. Give me a second to get to the appendix. Uh, 1920-1921, not really sure. Published in March 1921. Uh, and Nyarlathotep, December 1920. So written right after From Beyond. So Ex Oblivione, we don't really know quite when it was written. Maybe around this period. So, um, yeah, we might look at the both of them together as, as one. Although there's a lot to say about Nyarlathotep. I only hesitate doing that because I, I think that's worthy of a whole episode in its own right. Maybe we'll talk about that first and then tag on Ex Oblivione. Um, let me think about it. So, anyways, that's what's up next. So, let me know what you think of From Beyond. Give me your thoughts below. I'm really looking forward to to hearing from you about it so thanks as always for listening i will we'll see you next time